When we came to this country a few years ago, um, most of you will know I came to study at Oxford, and I was always amazed to find that uh, in Britain you don't recognize winter. It is as though it didn't exist. You've got the autumn session, then in January it's spring, and then summer, uh, as though there is no winter. Well, I hope that will be the case, that there will be such an expectancy that it will be like spring, even tonight. The subject is the glory of God. Now, I might have chosen a subject that would attract a lot of people for the first night. What I've done instead is to choose a subject that happens to be, for what it's worth, my own favorite theme. I didn't always feel this way. In fact, I can tell you a story. I just thought of it at this precise moment. Many years ago, I was uh, ordained to the ministry at the 13th Street Baptist Church in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, and my father came, my grandmother, the one who disinherited me. It was a real... Uh, what can I say, active humility for her to come into a Baptist church to see her grandson ordained to the ministry. And uh, I asked Dr. N.B. Magruder, who was one of my idols, if I may put it that way, heroes, to preach the ordination sermon. And uh, he took it took it upon himself to interview me. I didn't know this was going to happen, but he interviewed me at the end of his message. And the way he interviewed me was to ask me questions about the Bible and theology, and I didn't know this was coming up. And here, there are about 400 people out there, and with my relatives. And his first question was, tell us the one word above all others, that describes God. <laughs> I look down, there's my dad. He's Obviously, I don't think he knew. <laughs> and sweat began to pop out. I could feel my hair going curly, you know. And... There was no preparation, no warning. And he could see I was in trouble, so he tried to help me a little bit. Finally, he, he brought me right up to it. Oh, I said, glory. Yeah, that's it. And the rest of the questions actually were hard. <laughs> Quite a night. But that was my introduction, in a way, to this. This was back in 1964. And, uh, but it taught me a lot. And, and of course, I began to examine the subject. When I went to seminary years later, uh, in the, the Old Testament course, we were to write a theme paper at the end. And, and I chose to write on the glory of God. And I uh, followed this subject with interest ever since. And I hope, uh, even though you will not experience the trauma that I experienced in the way I was introduced to this, 
uh, which is one I, I love now. I hope that you won't have to have the trauma, but you can have the glory of it, if I may put it that way. Now, we're talking about the heart of God. And as you get to know him, then you will see that the one word that describes God best is he's a God of glory. That may not have been the word you would choose. Some of you might have said God of love. Uh, some might say God of justice. But uh, so I'll come back to that. And I'm not here to convince you because one of the points that I stress continually, I may not remember to say it every week, but you don't have to agree with everything that you hear. But I hope that you will see that that is the, the best word if you're only going to get to use one word. Our love for the glory of God is an indication whether our own hearts have been touched by the true God. I've also come to be influenced a lot by Jonathan Edwards, who was an American theologian, 18th century, mightily used in what we call the Great Awakening across the Atlantic in the 18th century. And the theme of all of Edwards' preaching was this, the glory of God. Now, what we have is a contrast. What you will hear tonight is such a contrast to what is being said in pulpits, in Bible colleges, universities, seminaries, because most theology that is done today is not theology, but anthropology. What's the difference? Well, the word theology means the study of God, or technically, theos and logos, word God, it's the study of the Word of God. Anthropology is the study of man. Well, why do I say that most theology that is taught today is anthropology? Simply because most theology today is done out of the assumption that man is the center of the universe and that God owes man an explanation of things. The man on the street thinks that. The man on the street believes that if there is a God, then he must explain himself, and he must explain why he's allowed this to happen. And you see, we live in what is called the me decade, the me generation. Theology today is largely existential. Now that word means, existentialism, is an emphasis upon our existence. The word existence, take it out of existentialism, and you've got the idea of our own existence. We are here today, gone tomorrow. While we're here, it's our existence, and therefore the emphasis is on the here and now. What's in it for me, as opposed to the God who is there, and the one before whom I will stand then. All right. There are two ways of doing theology. One is from man's point of view, the other is from God's point of view. And it's the latter approach that we take on Friday nights. Some of you have studied theology in other places. Some of you have gone through uh, uh, school, you've taken religious knowledge, and, and you know the emphasis there. 
But I dare say that what we do here on Friday nights in Westminster Chapel is, is God-centered and it is putting things from God's point of view, which is not being done, generally speaking. Now, I've got a little section here for the newcomer. The rest of you will not mind listening to this, because you will know that it's important to say this. There are several of you here for the first time. May I say, first of all, stay with the Course throughout this session, no matter how much you disagree. There'll be times, perhaps, that you just die inside. You think, how dare he say that? Well, you get a chance to ask a question at the end, and, and uh, I may know the answer, I may not, but uh, I do not require that you dot the I's, cross the T's. Stay with the Course throughout the session. The second thing I would say is, do not let what grips you determine how many sessions you attend. Just go for all of them. You've decided that uh, between now and Easter, you're going to come on Friday nights, some evenings will be more interesting than others. Uh, tonight's is probably not the most interesting. And uh, from a psychological point of view, perhaps I could have done better. But I want you just to get a flavor of, of what we teach here. And I would urge you not to go by what grips you, by what turns you on, but stay with it week after week. The third point I want to make is, Theology is not always interesting at the moment. I try you know, along the way to make it interesting, uh, but uh, a lot of it is, is not all that interesting or gripping. The dividends don't come at this moment, but later. One of the key verses, I keep going back to this one. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, I make this point. When we memorize scripture, which is something very few people do nowadays, but when you do it, you don't feel a lot of inspiration. Or when you determine you're going to read a little bit in your Bible every day, you don't always enjoy that. And so coming to these Friday nights, they will not always be full of inspiration. You stick it out for an hour and a half. What may happen, though, and I promise this, three weeks from now, like a time bomb, something will explode inside and you'll think, ah, oh, I see now what that means. Or better still, you are suddenly asked to say something and you wouldn't know what to say. And then you remember what you were taught. And it all comes back to you. Right on the spot, you may have to give a talk. You might have to talk to one other person. But the Holy Spirit reminds you of what was there. I put it sometimes like this. A lot of us today want to be filled with the Spirit. I do. You do. Surely. But if you are empty-headed before you are filled with the Spirit, you will be empty-headed afterwards. Don't think that being filled with the Spirit automatically puts knowledge into your head. No. Jesus said, the Spirit will remind you of what I taught. And that's the way it is. So if you're empty-headed before you're Spirit-filled, you'll be empty-headed afterwards. But if you get some knowledge, even in the times when it's not so inspirational, but you just do it. 
You know, the old uh, spiritual puts it, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I'll pray. Hey, if I waited until I felt moved by the Spirit to pray, I am embarrassed to think how little I would pray. I don't always feel led to pray. I don't feel moved to pray. I just do it regularly. Reading my Bible, I do it regularly. But then over the weeks, over the months, the dividends pay off. So I'm urging you to stay with it. All right, people ask, why theology? Isn't it dull and boring? Well, I answer, many of the best things that happen to us come as a result of what we underestimated at the moment of endurance. And later, you are so glad that you stuck it out. My motto, our motto is theology put simply. I do my best to make it so simple. And I promise to live up to this. All right. Now the subject this evening, the glory of God. Why have I chosen it? What is its relevance? Why study the glory of God? First, as I've already said, it is an introduction to the true and only God, the God of the Bible. You know, you know what fascinates me? Stephen, before the council, now do you know who Stephen was? One of the seven original deacons. One of the seven original deacons. And he was suddenly called on the carpet and he addressed the Sanhedrin. And we're told that as he spoke, no one was able to resist the spirit and the wisdom. The spirit and the wisdom by which he spoke. When we get to heaven, we can get a video replay of that moment. I want to see it. I want to watch Stephen. And I want to look at his face. Because we're told that his face was like the face of an angel. All right. They give him a chance to speak. And what was his opening line? His opening line was, the God of glory. The God of glory. You know what fascinates me? You talk about a man spirit-filled, a man who has such wisdom they couldn't handle him whose face was like an angel, and then his opening line, the God of glory. How many of you have noticed that before? Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Let me start over. How many of you had never noticed that before? Could I see your hand? Well, a lot of you never saw that. What does this tell you about Stephen? What does it tell you about a person who really is spirit-filled? You see, we've got so many ideas. It's what it's like to be spirit-filled. Well, there's a man who was spirit-filled, and look what came out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And his opening line was, Man and brethren, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Read it when you get home. All right, it's an introduction to the true God. Second, it teaches us what matters most. God's own glory. 
God's own glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. Two weeks from tonight we do the name of God. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another. My glory. That's what matters to God. And when we find out what matters to Him, then to study that. You really want Him to get to know God? You, know, you hear about some famous person, you think, what makes them tick? Uh, what's the quickest way to understand so-and-so? Uh, how do you really get into the heart to know this person? All right, what about God? Do you really want to get to know the true God? I'm telling you, understand the glory. That's the way into his heart. But the third reason I deal with this, it is what we all fall short of. It is why we know we are sinners. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is the way that will convince any person that he's a sinner. How do we know that? Well, the standard of what pleases God is what brings him glory. And when you realize what brings him glory, and then we fall short of that, we realize we're sinners. The fourth reason I deal with this, we're on holy ground. We are entering the most sacred area I know of. Moses saw the burning bush and immediately he wanted to see what made it happen. He wanted to know why a bush could be on fire and the bush didn't burn up. And Moses said, I'm going to see what this is. And God said, stop. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And Moses heard God speak and saw something of his glory. And that's where we are. And I pray that we can have an equivalent experience and to know that we're on holy ground. And in a way, I feel presumptuous that I would even deal with this subject. The fifth reason, though I deal with it, I promise it will be life-changing if we grasp and affirm from our hearts, not our heads, the glory of God. If, if you really grasp this, we get something over and it penetrates not your brain, but it reaches your heart. It will transform your sense of worship. You remember Isaiah had a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6. And he said there were the seraphim that cried one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now they knew that. They were in the spirit. We today find that hard to believe. But when Isaiah saw that, it transformed his sense of worship. It humbled him. He said, woe is me, for I am undone, but it will lead to obedience. He heard a voice saying, who will go 
who will go for me. And Isaiah said, Here am I, Lord, send me. And I hope that this will motivate us to lives of greater obedience than we've ever known. The sixth reason I deal with the subject is that it is the aim of our lives. Whatever we do, should be, whether you eat or drink, said Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all to the glory of God. And the seventh and final reason I give is that here we meet at the point where all of the spiritual greats, both in the Bible and church history, have encountered. They all had in common that they were enamored with the glory of God, not the glory of man. They were enamored with the glory of God. And I pray that that will happen to all of us. Uh, I don't know whether you're like me. I've always had my heroes. Uh, had my, my heroes I grew up was Joe DiMaggio, who was the center fielder for the New York Yankees. Another one of my heroes was Arthur Rubinstein, uh, the uh, pianist. Another hero still alive. Uh, actually, Joe DiMaggio is still alive. Arthur Rubinstein is dead. Another one of my heroes is Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist. And I, I've always loved to read the biographies or, about great men. But when it comes to the spiritually great men, men of God, living, dead, Old Testament, New Testament church history, they had in common this thread. They were enthralled. They were thrilled by the glory of God. And sooner or later, in our quest to know God, we will come up against this theme. Some hate it. No one here tonight, I'm sure of that. Some hate it and are never the same again. Some love it and are never the same again. And if we come to love the glory of God, it will be because we've got to know the true God and still love him. Some, you see, are turned off at the thought. I remember being in seminary years ago and uh, my old seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The theology at the time, I'm sorry to say, I think it's changed since, but at the time it was largely man-centered. And you had the students around and they were, they were going to go into the ministry. They, they couldn't bear the thought of a God of glory. They didn't like it. You know, they just didn't like it at all. They didn't like him. If that's the way he is, they didn't want him. Well, this is the way the God of the Bible is. The question is, when you come to see, this, is, this really is God. And you may have thought, oh, you know, all these years, that, that's not the God I've been worshiping. I've had this happen. I've actually had people say to me, I didn't know that if that's God, I've never even known him before. He's new to me. It's, it's different. I don't say that's going to happen with anybody here, but if it does, you're going to have to decide whether what we're putting forward tonight is describing the God of the Bible or not. And if you see it is the God of the Bible, and that's the true God, the question is, can you love him for being just like he is? Or 
Are you like those who say, there's a lot about God I like and there's a lot I don't like. And if I could come up with the perfect God, I would take this away, I'd take that away and put this there. But what I'm hoping will happen is that you get a glimpse of this God and you think, I wouldn't change him. If I could, he's wonderful. Wonderful. That's what I think will happen. This is the true God. All right. We will be in awe that we are treading where the greatest of the men and women have trod. Here's my definition, but there are other ways of stating it, which we will do throughout the evening. But if asked just at the very beginning, we're talking about the dignity of his person. The glory of God is the dignity of his person. Now, that obviously needs to be unpacked, and that's what this whole evening is going to do. The word dignity means worthiness or honor or respect. The word person is referring to the fact of God's essential being. He is a personal God. God is not an it. God is he. And the Trinity, of course, is God in three persons. So we're talking about the dignity of his person, his personality, what he is, what makes him tick, if I may put it like that. Now, there are two words in the ancient languages that must be observed. And, um, each is translated glory. In case you didn't know, most of you will know this, but in case you didn't, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. There's just a little exception in certain parts of Daniel. Uh, some of it is in Aramaic, but it's almost 99% Old Testament is Hebrew. So, there's a Hebrew word. It is kabod. And when you translate it into English, it is glory. But the word by itself refers to heaviness or weight. It refers to one's weight or stature. Did you ever hear the expression, so-and-so is throwing his weight around? He's throwing his weight around. Well, that's, that's the idea. Weightiness. You say, now there's a person who's, who's got weight. He's got stature. Uh, influence, power. Uh, that's the basic idea. God's weightiness. And it is used no fewer than 222 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word in the New Testament is doxa. Uh, we in Westminster Chapel sing the doxology every Sunday morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, doxa, it mainly means praise or honor. But, whereas the Hebrew word basically means weightiness, doxa comes from a word that means opinion, point of view. So, if, if we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about God's opinion. And so that comes very, very close, you see, to his heart. What he thinks. God has an opinion. And we're prepared to say that's his glory. 
what he thinks, that's good enough for me. It comes right down to his word. His word is his opinion. It's his glory. The New Testament, therefore, brings out a meaning inherent in the Old Testament that connects to God's opinion or will. And it is used no fewer than 168 times in the New Testament. Now, these two words combined, the kabod, meaning weightiness, doxa, meaning glory and honor, these two words will lead us to a number of other definitions, subsidiary, secondary definitions, and all of them would be correct. John, author of the fourth gospel, used this word to describe Jesus. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet it's very interesting. This uh, is what is used in, in John 1.14, mirrors the Hebrew meaning. For example, when uh, the ancient Hebrews referred to the Shekinah glory, uh, it's almost certain that the Greek word uh, that is translated lived for a while or tented or tabernacled comes from a word that is taken from the idea of Shekinah. And so uh, the glory uh, lived for a while. And that is the way John described Jesus. We saw his glory. Now, there's two ways of understanding that word. John 1.14, we saw his glory. It could mean that John was saying there was something about Jesus that we saw that others didn't see. We saw his glory. Another person said, I don't see anything about him. What, what's, what's so important about this Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, you don't see what I see? So... The one who's internally changed, he's able to see in Jesus what another person can't see. So that is partly what John meant when he said, we saw his glory. But then there's another way it could be interpreted, and that is that John just wanted to describe Jesus as his glory. In the same way that you refer to the queen, we saw her majesty today. We saw her majesty John could say, we saw his glory, referring to Jesus, because Jesus in his person mirrors the God of the Bible. The glory is the main thing about this God. Paul used this word to describe the gospel. Perhaps you never saw it before. But listen to this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This, in other words, this gospel that we preach, that we teach, according to Paul, could be called the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel of the glory of Christ. My old friend Rolf Barnard, now in heaven, used to talk about the glory of God in Christ. The gospel of the glory. That's exactly what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 4.14. And he said, the devil has kept people from seeing this. To put it another way, the devil doesn't mind if you see Jesus as a great teacher. The devil doesn't mind that. 
He doesn't mind if you see him as a prophet. Any Muslim will say Jesus is a prophet. The one thing the devil doesn't want you to see is that this gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ. Because Satan hates Jesus. And he hates his glory. He hates the glory of God. And the devil will let you see anything else but that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not. I have a feeling somebody here at this moment, you're saying, I'm beginning to wonder if I've ever been converted. I'm beginning to wonder if I've ever seen this God. The fact that you haven't seen it quite like this would not mean that you haven't been converted. But it can mean this, that this very night can be an experience in which you are being transformed from glory to glory. And you're getting a fresh revelation and vision. You may say, where have I been? And why haven't I seen this before? All I know is that we're teaching ABC stuff. And it's God that we're into. The God of the Bible. And the result of the gospel then was to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. All right. Another way of describing the glory of God is this way. The sum total of God's attributes. Now, the word attribute is simply a word that means one's characteristic. Uh, and uh, I've come up with several attributes or characteristics or descriptions of God. Uh, we won't pause long on each one of them. Uh, every single one, there are 20 listed. Do you not know that we could have 20 Friday evenings? 20 Friday evenings. A whole evening on God is personal. We can have a whole evening on the holiness of God. He hates sin. We can have a whole evening on the mercy of God. That means he does not want to punish us. We can have a whole evening on the justice of God. How fair, how absolutely fair God is. God is jealous. That means he will tolerate no rival. Victor Hugo said, Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. You've no, you know nothing. God cannot bear a rival. You talk about jealous? God will not have it. He wants to be first. God is faithful. That means he will never desert us. God is truthful. That means he can't lie. He doesn't know how. It's impossible for God to lie. God is eternal. That means he didn't have a beginning. Doesn't have an end. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is unchangeable. His character stays the same. I could say in this vein, God is unimprovable. He doesn't pick up knowledge along the way. God already knows everything. 
that comes to the next point. He's omniscient. That's what that word means. He knows everything. You may want to feel sorry for God because he can't learn. God cannot learn. He already knows everything. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. There's nothing he can't do. Somebody needs to be reminded at this moment that where with man it is impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. Perhaps you're up against it at this moment. You're looking for the breakthrough. You're looking for God to supply your need. You're wanting the answer. You're saying you can't go another day. God can do anything. That's the God of the Bible. God is omnipresent, which means there's no place where he isn't. We sometimes say, Lord, we pray that you will come and be with us today. Don't worry, he's, he's already there. But then there is a special kind of God's presence. We'll end the evening on that point. God is invisible. Nobody can see him. God is incomprehensible. That means no one can fully understand him or figure him out. God is creator. He made all that is out of nothing. God is redeemer. He bought us back with the blood of his son. God is spirit. He cannot be seen or touched. God is Savior. He saves us from our sins and from his own wrath. He's King of Kings. All the kings of the earth must bow to him. His Father. What he becomes to us through Christ Jesus. There are 20. If we looked a little while, we could find 20 more. But that would be an introduction. Now, considering these 20 points, I won't repeat them, but we've just had them. And you had to come up with one word that says it all. It is the glory of God. The one word which sums up all the above. This is why I say the glory of God is the sum total of all that is said about him, all his attributes. It's the nearest you come in describing God in but one word. It's Acts chapter 7. If you don't have anything better to do tonight, read it before you go home, uh, before you go to bed. Stephen, at the beginning of Acts 7, refers to the God of glory. And the last thing we hear about God at the end is his glory, the glory of God. And I cannot help but think, if we will concentrate on the God of glory, it may be, it may be, we will see the glory of God. But many want to see the glory, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But that is looking for a particular effect, something that dazzles us, like a haze that I have wondered would it ever just come in to this very building that would dazzle us. But we don't look for it. We want to make sure we're talking about the God of glory. 
and just concentrate on him. To use a Greek word or a Greek concept, it is the nearest you come to God's essence. The word essence means all that makes a thing what it is, its nature. So the nature or essence of God in one word would be his glory. God is the weightiest being that is. We may ask, who carries the most weight? Uh, article or several articles in the Times, I think it was last week, on uh, just how much power does the monarch have? How much power is in the monarchy? Uh, and you want to know who in Britain has the most power? Who has the most weight? Is it royalty? Is it a politician? It may be a wealthy person. It may be who controls the media. It may be someone highly respected or feared. It will be, whoever it is, it will be the one with the most power. Well, God is the most powerful, awesome being that is, which is his glory. One more point before we take a little break. Another way of putting what we're talking about tonight is where the credit goes, where credit is due. This is another idea. We can't uh, uh, go very far into this subject without dealing with this. Do you know the words? Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. 1 Chronicles 16:29. Glory, therefore, means credit. We will sometimes say, who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? All right. I want us just, this is elementary stuff here, but we want to go through this page. I want to pause to say, say it like this. The great feeling that can come to you as we look at these lines, if you will get your eyes off yourself, if I will get my eyes off myself, together and just think about him. How many times have we all done this? We come to the Lord when we're very, very discouraged. Or when we have our quiet time, we come to our Bible reading and we think, Lord, I sure do want to hear a word from you today. What am I going to do about this person at work? What am I going to do about this financial need? Uh, you know this emotional problem I've got, or uh, so-and-so is not speaking to me. And, uh, Lord, I just want a word. I want a word today from you about this, 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 this. If we could come to the place that we would just concentrate on him, because the Bible says he inhabits the praises of men. And just start praising him and forget about all the little things that we were hoping for. It's amazing how what mattered so much just goes away and dissolves into nothing. And we just think about him. It's kind of like uh, when um, Saul was looking for the prophet Samuel. And uh, they were worried about what happened to the donkeys. And uh, that's what they started out worrying about. 
And then they saw the prophet, and then they, and the prophet gave them far more than anything they ever, ever dreamed of. And then Samuel said, oh, by the way, the, the, the donkeys are okay. It just said that kind of like a P.S. That's all right, too. The point is, if we would just concentrate on God, the donkeys we're worried about, this problem person at work, don't say I called them a donkey, but whatever. God will accept your praise and then you'll just discover, oh, by the way, that problem's going to be all right. All right, just before we take the break, let's go through this. Where credit is due to God for creating us. Who gets the credit for being created? God. I will praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How contemptible to speak of creation by chance or evolution. Who gets the credit for the beauty of creation? God. For redemption. Who gets the credit for our being chosen? God. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. How silly to speak of salvation in terms of what we have done for God. So who gets the credit for purchasing our salvation? God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. How absurd for any of us to speak of salvation in terms of our good works. Who gets the credit for drawing us to himself? God. No one can come to me said Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. How ridiculous that we should say we made the first move toward God. Who gets the credit for our being kept? God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How ludicrous to suppose we keep ourselves saved. Who gets the credit for all the benefits that are ours in Christ? God. For our gifts. You've got a gift. And the moment you begin to feel a little proud about it, then ask this question. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? How arrogant for us to take credit for what we have. Your position. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. How thoughtless of us if we say we got to where we are by our own cleverness. You may say... I got to where I am because I've worked for it. Others have worked as hard as you and they didn't get there. You say, I've got to where I am because of what I've done. Others have done what you've done. They didn't get to where you are. God did it. And who gets the credit for guiding us? Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How ungrateful we are if we fancy that we cope in our own strength. All that we are and have and hope to be can be summed up in this. To God be the glory. With that, we'll take a little break and come back in a couple minutes. Another way of describing 
the God of glory, the dignity of his pleasure, the honor of his pleasure, his pleasure being his will. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. You see, only a sovereign has the right to invite who comes in to his or her presence. And so it will be said of the queen, the queen is pleased to invite so-and-so. We're talking about the dignity of God's pleasure. Now, it comes to two things. The dignity of his presence, what his presence does and means, we'll come back to that, and the dignity of his will, how his opinion should be regarded. I want his opinion. His opinion, if I can get it, will cut through all the nonsense where I want to argue. And another person says this, whenever you can get a good opinion, it's worth more than gold. And so God's opinion is worth having. That's the dignity of his will. Moses, on one occasion, made a most stupendous, you could even say impertinent, request of all things to see God's glory. Quite. And yet Jesus would later say, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And Stephen, who began talking about the God of glory, at the end saw the glory of God. If you don't have anything better to do when you get home, read the seventh chapter of Acts. And God replied to Moses, when Moses made that request, he said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know, I was interviewed this week by somebody from the BBC. They are going to do a program on the Old Testament. And uh, they said, we want, to, we want to use somebody who can get excited about the Old Testament. I said, I'm your man. <laughs> I said, there's only one problem. What's that? I believe it. I believe the Old Testament. And this dear lady, you know, interviewed in a little while, she had to go back and report whether they're going to come back and, and use me. And, uh, you know, I gave it my best shot, you know, trying to explain, you know, why the Old Testament is relevant. And, but then along the way, you know, she said, but you're saying that this God, you know, I said, yep. Well, but isn't, is really, is God really like that? I mean, that's, you know, a, who, who could really like a God like that? I said, well, you see, why do you think the first message of the New Testament is flee from the wrath to come? It's John the Baptist. That's the opening words of the New Testament. Flee from the wrath to come. I said, the God that they want to talk about today, nobody would run from him. Can you imagine the God of the Bishop of Durham? 
and anybody saying flee from him can understand fleeing from the bishop of Durham. I'm not sure anybody would want to flee from the God of the bishop of Durham because that God wouldn't hurt anybody. But you see, the God of the Bible, the psalmist on one occasion said he's terrible. And when his presence is known and manifested, it's a feeling of awe. Well, I was saying some of this. this I'll let you know if the BBC <laughs> decides to use me. That's not in your notes, and I didn't even have that written down to save. <laughs> but this God has a will of his own. And so in Exodus 33, it referred to his presence and his will, what he would be pleased to do. For this reason, you know, we should pray that God will be pleased to show himself. See, when you understand this, this will stop us, won't it? from rushing into God's presence, snapping our finger. Say, come on, God, here I am. I went to church last week, and I expect you to do something for me. And when you understand that God owes us nothing, and what an honor it would be if he just turned up, his presence is to be valued above anything. This is what I want more than anything in the world, for God to turn up in this place. I long for it. Sometimes, I, I'm not making this up, I lay in bed at night dreaming, with my mind not falling asleep, I mean fantasizing, daydreaming at night, if I may put it that way, of the Lord turning up here. When he, he's just here. And I just, I, I, I like to think that one day he's just going to be here. And we're going to look at each other and say, wonderful. That hasn't happened here, to my knowledge, not since I've been minister of this church. Uh, but it would be wonderful. The first time God's presence is referred to is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And God's presence was promised to Moses. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And, and, and just to know him there. You see, God's presence graced Solomon's temple. There was something greater than all the splendor, the gold and the money spent on it. And, and it was put like this in two chronicles. Chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Notice something of that happened here? They just couldn't even enter. God's presence in this way, in fact, was visible. It was a cloud. And we're immediately told this was the glory. So we're, you know, moving into quite a different definition. There are various ways of describing the glory of God. And now we're talking about something that is 
visible, visible. Whether a non-Christian would see it if present when that presence was unveiled, I, I don't know. I don't know. But it would at least be visible to the naked eye of a person who's, who's saved. And it came to be known as the Shekinah. And there's no way of knowing exactly what it was like, although I've talked to people who have seen it. I don't know whether any of you have. Uh, many of you, uh, well, I think most of you will know the little chorus, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. Uh, that was written by Jack Hayford. A couple of years ago, someone gave me a copy of Jack Hayford's testimony. And I had copies made of it, and I wanted all our deacons to listen to it and pass it around the chapel. It was deeply moving. And Jack Hayford tells a story that one Saturday, he opened the door of his auditorium. Nobody was there. And he looked out, and he said, there was a haze in, in the church, in the building. And he just looked at it, and the Lord spoke to him and said, It's what you think it is. It's what you think it is. At that time, Jack Hayford's attendance, I think, like was two or three hundred. Two years later, it was two thousand. Now I think it's ten thousand, maybe twenty, I don't know. But the point, it all was traceable to that moment. He noticed from then on, so that he knows it wasn't his preaching or his new ideas. You know, we always look for something. What can we do? Let's try this. And then let's try that. Maybe if we had a shorter prayer or divided the prayer up or had this one start, you know, we would just look for things. We can look for all kinds of things. But what will make the difference, you see, is if God were just to turn up like that. And uh, so the secret of, of, of Jack Hayford's success is, is the Lord's glory was just there. This is why we pray for it. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful? We, we can't make that happen. Uh, okay, anything sillier than to say, well, here's what we can do. Ten easy steps and the glory will come. There's one other occasion. It was an event that would change my own life. My father was there. I've talked to many people who were there. A group of four men prayed all night for revival to come to this church in Ashland, Kentucky, my home. And I could talk a lot about that, by the way. They prayed into three or four o'clock in the morning, the four of them, and just kept praying. They didn't talk to each other once just kept praying uh, out loud a lot of the times, sometimes not out loud, but at about four o'clock, maybe five, they, they went home. That evening, when one of the four was to speak, when he stood up, the haze came. His wife told me, his wife was at the back of the auditorium in the creche, we call it nursery over there, uh, which is kind of like the... Uh, area there where we have our public address system, where it's glass. And she was there uh, with one of her babies, and she looked 
and she saw it, and she said it was so thick that you couldn't see to the front of the church. And he who was in the pulpit couldn't see to the back. The haze had come. It was there for just a few minutes. But all who, who I've talked to, the feeling of awe, the feeling of awe. And uh, it's another story how it changed my own life. But we're talking about this same glory of God, where it, in one moment we're talking about the sum total of his attributes. And then we talk about what is due, his name, the credit. Or we're talking about his opinion. It doesn't stop there. It's the way he can manifest himself. Now, there are various manifestations of God's presence. There may be a healing presence. That's something Paul Cain taught me. I never even thought about it, but then he pointed out this verse in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. The power of the Lord was present to heal. And uh, Paul Cain said that he's known this in his ministry. When there was such a presence of God that it was a healing presence and people just were being healed, just, just all over the place. He said they could almost just drink it in and, uh, you know, God would just heal. And the next night, people would come hoping for that, wouldn't be there. You cannot make it happen. There's another kind of presence, a judgment presence. Uh, when Ananias and Sapphira, one at a time, it was a conspiracy. They lied about their possessions. They did it voluntarily. And each of them was struck dead. And it was awful. It says great fear came upon everybody. Great fear. It was a judgment presence. I don't know what that would be like. But it, there it was. There may be a praise presence when all anybody wants to do is just praise the Lord and you want to worship him and you just want to give him glory and 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 just just praise him and I would urge you don't wait for the spontaneity of that when you are alone talking to God when you are feeling the most depressed and you're wanting to be blessed, I would challenge you. Some of you could try it tomorrow morning and just sacrifice your time. In fact, in Hebrews 13, you have the phrase, sacrifice of praise. Because you just, you'd like to ask God for this and this and this and this and this. Why don't you just abandon it all and just spend the whole time praising Him and just start counting your blessings. And uh, as some of you have heard me say, the first thing I do every day is to thank the Lord for what happened in the last 24 hours. I will pray in the morning and I'll start out my prayer time and I will thank him for any help that he gives me even as I talk now. I will thank him for the wisdom he gave me when someone came into the vestry to see me. I will thank him for helping me to get to this place on time. I will just little things. And then... Uh, I may go on and to my prayers, but there are times when I just think, I want to do nothing. I, I don't literally tear out my prayer requests. I just put it aside and just spend the time doing nothing 
but praising the Lord. But then there are times when that is spontaneous, too. But that's one thing I'm suggesting that even if it's not spontaneous, it would never be wrong to do. There may be an intercessory prayer presence in which uh, this comes out not just in Acts 4, but in, in Acts chapter 12. When Peter was imprisoned and the whole church just, they just prayed and all they could do is just pray about one thing. And there's just a spirit of prayer. I've long hoped that this would come to our place here where there's just a spirit of intercessory prayer. And you see, when that spirit of prayer comes, it's not a case of having to beg people to pray. If that spirit were to come on the chapel, we have a prayer meeting every Sunday at quarter past five. If we're lucky, there'll be 30 there. On a real good Sunday, 35. I dare say if the spirit of intercessory prayer came upon this place, they'd be standing out. You couldn't even get in there. Because it's just a presence to pray. There may be a presence of wisdom where one is just given a sense of what to do. There's a special presence at the Lord's Supper. We had a, a, a whole evening on the Lord's Supper uh, last year, some of you recall. Uh, and we've been stressing that more and more here in Westminster Chapel to know uh, just how the Lord can turn up at the Supper. And there's a presence that just issues in conversions where people are just being saved. Uh, if we took time, I could come up with seven more. But there's just an idea that's another way of describing the glory of God. Any sense of God's presence is owing to his will. He may be pleased to show or withhold his glory. How many of you know the name David Brainerd? Can I see your hands? David Brainerd. How many of you have never heard of David Brainerd? Most of you, or the majority, have not heard of him. Had he lived, he would have been Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. Uh, he was a missionary to the American Indians in what we call upstate New York. He died at the age of 29 from uh, tuberculosis. He learned four things about God that led to his conversion. Incidentally, Jonathan Edwards was present at David Brainerd's death on his deathbed. He was in Edwards' home. And Jonathan Edwards said that a second before Brainerd died, a brightness, a glory just came into the room like this and went right back out. And Brainerd was gone. 29 years old, he wrote a journal, and when John Wesley saw it, he said, all of our ministers must read the life and diary of David Brainerd. It used to be said that it put more young people on the mission field than any body of literature. But here's what led to his own conversion. He saw four things about God. One. That God demanded the perfect righteousness. Brainerd didn't have it. It meant he needed a substitute. And it made him angry with God. And I don't know that this is happening here, but sometimes when you get angry at God, 
angry at a teaching, it's because you need to be broken. And the first thing Rainer realized that he didn't have the righteousness that God required, that he'd have to have a substitute, that made him angry, that somebody else would have to produce the righteousness. He saw that God demanded perfect faith, and Brainerd couldn't produce it. It meant that God had to give it to him. And then he realized that Jesus had a perfect faith, and that would have to be his substitute. And then Brainerd saw that God could give faith or withhold it and still be God. And God could save him or damn him, and either way it would be just. And Brainerd was so angry, but eventually he was broken, and he came to God and asked for mercy. When do you ever hear preaching today where we're told to ask God for mercy? You see, when you ask for mercy, that means you've got no bargaining power. God can give or withhold mercy and, and be just either way. And this generation, you see, they don't have any idea of this God. This is the God of the Bible. And may this concept and experience grip us to realize we're talking about the God this generation, by and large, knows nothing about. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if a nation were on her knees asking for mercy? It is to be coveted above all else, this glory. If the church is to have any respect, it could be called the church's genius. It is what will make a church or break it, should it be absent. The worst thing that can be said of the church is the glory has departed. Some of you will know this, that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's glory. And when it was taken, it was said, the glory has departed. And so a church's genius is not its wealth, it's not its gifted clergymen or its gifted ministers, it's not its numbers, it's not its buildings or its architecture or its music. The church's genius is the presence of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards put it like this, The one thing which Satan cannot successfully counterfeit is the love for the glory of God. Let me put it to you like this. I don't know that there's anybody here tonight wrestling with the problem whether you're saved. Maybe there is someone here. You, you're afraid maybe you're not really converted. Well, let me tell you this. If, you, if your heart warms to this teaching and you think, wow, I love this God, only God could give you that. If you have a love for the glory of God, the devil could not put that there. It's just a, this is one thing Jonathan Edwards taught. For people who weren't sure whether they really are saved, if you love this, if you warm to this, you can mark it down. The flesh wouldn't give you that. The devil wouldn't give you that. Only God. 
It is the grace that distinguishes us as true believers. No unconverted man or woman can love God's glory. If you do love it, you are without doubt a true child of God. I was amazed to read something in the NIV a few years ago, and I want to turn to it. It's, it's right there. It's Psalm 29, verse 9. I just want to read it to you. This is actually the way the NIV translates it. Psalm 29, 9. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where people are just so full, and in order to let it, let the steam out, they just want to say glory. You ever heard that? Ever heard anybody say that? Rare nowadays. But uh, I've been in places where there was such a sense of the presence of God that the people, in order to keep from passing out almost, had to say something, and what would come out is glory. And I'd known that years ago, and when I saw that in the NIV, I thought, isn't that wonderful? And then I looked in my old authorized version, and it has it in the margin. Glory with an exclamation point. Well, Stephen, before the council, started out talking about the God of glory. And he ended up seeing God's glory. Just maybe, just maybe, if we will be enamored with the God of glory. Just maybe, he'll turn up and we will see his glory. Well, this is your first night. We stop at 20 past and we take questions. And the questions I hope uh, I can answer. I... I don't know what my rate is, 50% or less. But uh, if you've got a question, we'd like to hear it. We're not so much interested in one's opinion as we are an honest question that has arisen. Don't be timid, but if you've got a question, these two microphones are in the aisle. Who will be first in 1994 to ask a question? All right, I thought it might be you. You usually have you usually have statements, not questions. Let's see if, if you've made a New Year's resolution. Somebody come over here and be ready. Go ahead. Uh, do you think, Dr. Kendall, that Jesus most perfectly showed us the glory, the weight, the true value of a God who is love? Yes. When he received the... Um, sweating of blood and the crucifixion and made this the opportunity for the bodily transformation in which he includes us poor things. Uh, I mean, th that bodily transformation in which we promise we can ask for the interior reality now, the substance now, Hebrews 11.1 1, and the externals later. Do you think that's how we, above all else, the glory of God is it's shown to us. Sweet brother. Do you think so? You lost me ten minutes ago. 
Well, <laughs> I said yes. Jolly good. <laughs> and I'm not going to say more. All right, someone else. Come on, please. Well, you got to go over to the microphone, brother. Anyone else? Fill up the honor. Don't wait till 8.30, because we're going to quit no matter how many are there. And you know what? Nine out of ten times, I stay up here and just talk to anybody who wants to see me. I'll get the best questions. And I'll say, why ever didn't you ask that out there? Oh, I was too timid. They don't be, because for your question, there'll be ten others that thought it and be so glad you had the courage. And, and don't deprive us of your question. Come on, someone over there. Go, go ahead. After 28 years and a half in teaching of pathology within the circle... what? Pathology. Pathology. Yes. Uh, they say that after 15 minutes, you lose the value every minute that goes by. Uh, is it because the spirit of is God... Is that what happened tonight? No, 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 by all means. Can you explain, uh, how, as a minister, how long before you sort of lose the feeling of the meeting? Well, let me see how many are asleep right now. <laughs> I don't know. I... Oh, we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes. Did we lose you? Who, who did I lose? Oh, I, you be, there's one back there. I lost you. Sorry about that. Uh, it's uh, 24 minutes past eight. Uh, you still got time to get your train. Uh, I guess I did lose some. Is that your question? Well, if it's, what can I say? I certainly, I would blame myself that this brother lost, uh, lost me, or I lost him. Uh, so I wouldn't hold that against him. I, I guess at some stage uh, uh, it wasn't as interesting to him. Uh, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to... To, to keep it interesting or tell a story or to keep people's attention. Uh, but I wouldn't want to say it was faulty teaching. I would just say the teacher, you know, wasn't interesting enough. But I work on it all the time. Anyway, all right. Question, dear? Um, you know you were saying that God is invisible. He's not going to be invisible when we get in heaven, is he? We're going to see him, or is it Jesus that we're seeing? Oh, well, we all have that question. I'm prepared to say, without being able to defend it to the hilt, that we will see God in heaven. I'm prepared. I think I could interpret one verse at the beginning of Revelation chapter 22, and Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're told that the, the angels behold him, so surely, and Jesus beholds him, we're going to be like Jesus. So I'm prepared to say yes to that. All right. Um, coming back to what you said earlier about um, Romans 3.23, the glory of God, uh, falling short of the glory of God. And of course our Lord in Matthew 5.45 talked about be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect. Doesn't the glory of God also have a quality in the sense that we hear so much talk today about the the Shekinah glory, uh, but isn't the real key really God, the quality of God's glory, his, uh, his character, as it were, 
do we really ourselves appreciate that we are to be changed from glory unto glory, as Paul says? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I didn't know that there was so much talk today about the Shekinah. Uh, that's news to me that there's a lot of talk about it. Uh, I think that wouldn't be a bad sign if it were. Uh, uh, but uh, certainly what you said is what I thought I had taught. <laughs> Maybe I lost you at the beginning. I don't know. All right. Are you finished? And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love, the tender mercy of God the Father, the fellowship, the joy, the peace, the protection, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by the Holy Spirit be with us, abide with us now and until we meet again. Amen. God bless you.